Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Let's have some fun, Sherry. Okay. Want to have some fun on this podcast episode? Sure. Let's do it. We uh, feel like sometimes, you know, talking about alcoholism, recovery, sobriety, gaslighting, denial, lies, that gets kind of heavy sometimes. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Can't imagine. Not today. Today we're going to have some fun. But, be- <laughs> but before really? we have some fun, let's do a listener question. I think it's kind of heavy. That was a terrible way to lead into this listener question. Hey, listeners, if you would like to ask a listener question... Please send us an email. Send it to matt at soberandunashamed.com and let us know what's on your mind. And we will, in return, on one of these episodes, tell you what's on our mind. It's a great trade-off. It's a win-win. Not clinical advice, just some lived experience, just what we're thinking. So yeah, our inventory of listener questions is getting a little lower than we like to see, so... Send your thoughts over. I made that same plea last week, and uh, we got a few. So, um, yeah, send us what's on your mind. The, today's listener question, Sherry, are you ready for this? I think the question's for me. I can't remember. This was a few days ago I wrote it down. Let's see. When were you able to see past the effect that drinking had on you to acknowledge the profound impact it had on the people close to you? Did you ever communicate it to them? So yeah, that's to me, but I want to hear from you too, because you're in on this. You want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first. I'm All right. Questions to you. Well, I think the word in the question that is so important is the word acknowledge. This, to me, this is all about acknowledgement. It's not about apologies. Now, yes, I apologized a lot, but I apologized when I was drinking. I apologized in early sobriety. I apologized... You know, the day after or two days after a bad event. And so those apologies, they got kind of meaningless, didn't they, Sherry? Never been apologized to. If if your alcoholic was just one of those, and we meet lots of them that are, that just don't apologize along the way, then an apology is probably really important and meaningful to you. But if you're, I would say, in the majority, and you've gotten a lot of meaningless apologies, then the acknowledgement is is really the key. Um, you know, addiction is selfish. Early sobriety is also selfish. And I just, during both of those periods, I locked, lacked the bandwidth to understand the importance of acknowledging the truth and acknowledging what you were sharing with me. What, what's your reaction to all of this, Sherry? When, you know, when do you feel like you were acknowledged and, uh, you know, the, your version of the truth was owned by me? Took a while, right? Yeah, it took a while, and I think that maybe I have a different um, interpretation of what I would feel like maybe acknowledgement would be, because you have always been a talker. We've over-talked things, over-discussed things. You can't ever over-talk something, Sherry. Yes, you can. Um, but over-processed, over-try, you know, over-corrected. Like, it was just so much, like, that's part of your all-or-nothing personality, I think, so... I feel like all or nothing the, personalities are very common among alcoholics. Yes. So I think the acknowledgement piece was more in your actions rather than your verbal reactions or your verbal like um, apologies. Like we said, that I wasn't. So really don't tell that. me, so, show me. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like for me, like that acknowledgement was in what you were doing and how you were treating me, how you were treating the kids, how you're behaving. So there was a lot of, of behavioral issues that made me feel more acknowledged in that. Because you could say all you wanted with your lip service, like, oh, well, yes, you're right, you're right, you're right. You know, I believe you, I believe you, but did I really believe that you believed me? Not always. So I had to watch you with your behavior and your actions and your reactions and the way that you responded to people. Because part of my, one of my biggest disgusts was the way that you would treat people or talk about people behind their back or strangers. <coughs> like you were not a very nice person. So I had to see that change too. Because then that made 
me feel like you were acknowledging that you had been a dick for all these years. And, well, I mean, it was an honest truth. It was. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, yeah, so I think, I think it took like a couple years, though. But you had been working on it for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Shelby, don't tell me. You're absolutely right. You know, especially when I would say things, whether it was an apology or an acknowledgement, and then go ahead and repeat that bad behavior over and over again. Uh, that's got to be really, really difficult to live with. You know, I think one of the reasons getting, you know, trying to get to the heart of what I think this listener is experiencing, I think one of the reasons that we alcoholics so often wanted to deny how bad things are and say, you know, oh, it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. I, you know, I, I kept my job. We didn't have a financial collapse. I never cheated on you. We say things like that because we're just, we're in denial and the shame would be too great to deal with if we actually had to deal with it. And so it's easier to not deal with it. It's easier to deny kind of its existence and deny the impact on the loved ones. You know, I think there's a bigger societal problem here. Obviously, we've talked about this, but nobody seems to acknowledge how hard this is to be the spouse of an alcoholic. In almost every case where we get to know the folks, the interaction that the family and the close friends have with the spouse, the not drinker, is, oh, you know, how's Matt doing? How's his sobriety coming? Is it, has he had any relapses? How's, is he struggling? How's he doing? Is he okay? Without any questions of, how's Sherry doing? Um, before I had my little choking up fit, sorry. Um, I, I wanted to also add on to my statement about how I had to watch your reactions. There was a brief time in your sobriety that was a little bit longer term like I, I mean not longer term but like it was still within that first two years where there was a point where you were blaming the alcohol uh-huh. treating it like a disease great but I feel like sometimes you were dismissive for those people that were in the outside of our immediate family of not acknowledging or apologizing uh-huh. in the true like AA sort right. of way and I think that that could that came across as very offensive and you just wanted to educate our outer family members rather than um, say, I'm sorry. So that was really hard. It was like some people were accepting of it and some people weren't. Like my side of the family was more like, yeah, I know you can say you're sorry all you want. We just want to see you do better. They, and I think that's probably where I got that mindset. So I think it also depends on the person that and your relationship. Yeah. I know that we're talking about the, sp- the spouses specifically, but there are people on the outer fringe they're going to react. I think this listener was asking more than just for for herself. I think it's I'm pretty sure the listener is a woman, I can't remember. Um but But I think that it I think she's on, asking for for family as well, so I yeah, think that's relevant. I think it depends relevant. on the receiver of the information and um so you have to kind of be prepared for that. For like I was shocked at my own reaction from some of our family members that were Less than impressed, I guess, to say with your, you know, well, I'm not going to apologize for my actions. It was the alcohol that was making me do that. And you weren't that blunt, but I think that's how they interpreted it. Yeah. Because they were more closed off. So I think you just have to, and that's hard to, you know, because you've been out of touch sober with these people for quite a while with your interaction, your interactions that you may not know how to read them. So just be prepared for that, both of you, because being... The partner who was wanting to have that conversation in a grander form with our extended family, uh, it was it was very hard. Yeah, yeah, I still struggle with whether we whether I showed up the the way I should have for that conversation. Um, so well, yeah, and I think because I, I think you just have to really evaluate, and and maybe it's even something that's would be helpful. Like, before you go out to the extended family. Yeah. To, like, have a conversation. To, like... So, we know that this is how this person reacts. What do you think they would like, you know? If... I mean, if that's if your alcoholic in recovery is willing to go that far out there well, for and acknowledgement. So, and so, let's politics. talk about what that alcoholic in early recovery is willing or able to do. 
because I think that gets to the core of this listener's question, you know, about acknowledging the profound impact it had on the people close to you is what the question specifically says. I think it's mutually beneficial for me and I think for other alcoholics as well um, to acknowledge, to, to, to do this acknowledgement piece, to do this resentment processing, to, I mean, I think to your point, to to do it on an individual basis and figure out what that person needs. You know, I don't think it's all about apologizing. I, I don't, I'm not a fan of the amends process in the 12 steps, the specific way that it's done. But I do want to acknowledge the fact that it's not called the apology process. It's called the amends step. And the reason is it's, I think the 12 steppers, I think the, AA book from 100 years ago acknowledges the fact that what you just said, Sherry, different people need different things. And so making amends might be a quick apology for some person and it might be more in depth for somebody else. Um, so, but but the point I want to make is that it's mutually beneficial. It's not only helpful for the loved ones, for the spouse, for the other family members to hear, yes, I acknowledge the bad stuff that happened and I acknowledge how badly it impacted you. It's not only good for them, it's good for us, the alcoholic. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about, uh, intimacy and trust. You know, there's nothing attractive about being the slobbering puddle puddle, as I like to say, who is glomming onto you and asking for support and woe is me. And then alternatively angry because you can't get over it fast enough. And why won't you, leave the past behind. There's nothing attractive about that. So if I'm trying to rebuild trust and I'm trying to get back into the inner circle with my inner circle, um, you know, if they need a certain something or they need it a certain way, then let's go there as opposed to telling them they're wrong because they can't move on and that they had something to do with the negative behavior as well and that they're partially to blame. What's that fixing? You know, laying... Laying, I, you're right. I spend a lot of time laying the blame on the alcohol, on the substance, on the addiction and distancing myself from it because that helps me from a self-esteem and from a, um, you know, getting out of the shame cycle standpoint, but there's no good transferring it to you. This is your problem. You need to grow up. You need to live in the present. I don't want to go to the past anymore. So there's some mutually beneficial stuff about, um, you know, going back and going there. Um, for many of us, the long-term thing is about rebuilding trust. Well, you can't just ask for your spouse who you have gaslit and lied to and and been mean to and said nasty. You can't just ask them to trust you. You have to be trustworthy. And that takes a long time. And I don't think it's just a be sober for a while and then all the knowledge comes pouring in. You did a lot of reading and a lot of research and you had done that even while you were drinking trying to figure out brain chemistry and things like that so as you were kind of preparing for this inevitable like never drink again so I think it just depends on like the how long in the acknowledgement but how long has this person really been like working and trying yeah not just I'm white knuckling it to be sober and in a year my brain will be fixed no I mean it's not gonna happen that way so I mean the brain chemistry might be fixed but, but the, relationships the relationships aren't gonna be yeah, fixed yeah I mean like it's not just gonna but all that knowledge isn't gonna come flooding in that oh you started drinking when you were 16 and that's where you left off maturity wise right. your brain chemistry might be balanced but your maturity hasn't caught up to that yet. yeah and you're there is no like you have to do the work you have to you know think about all different aspects of what alcohol affected and and do the work on that whether it's therapy or reading or you know just even communicating with your partner yeah yeah and you know the biggest advice i can give to the alcoholics which i know this this listener is not the alcoholic but i mean i wish this listener's alcoholic would listen to me which i doubt they ever will but the biggest advice I could give them is don't act like your sober, you know, your non-addicted spouse or your non-addicted kids or your non-addicted Don't act like they're the enemy. Like if if they need to go into the past to deal with some resentments, 
they're not bad people for doing that. They're not making it harder on you for doing that. They're not being unsupportive for doing that. We hear that all the time. They need they need that, okay? They need and that. The, the alcohol caused them to need that. You don't have to take it all on you. You don't have to take it as an affront on you as a human because this person needs to deal with stuff that's happened in the past. That's, by the way, healthy. Just saying, oh, it's in the past and I'm sober now and we're moving forward. I'm not going to ever deal with that. That's not healthy. So, yeah. Does it hurt to go back and look at the things that the addict that lived in your body did? Hell yeah, it hurts. It's hard. But your spouse isn't the enemy. Like, stop blaming them because they need this. They're human. Well, they went through trauma. Of course they need this. And that's sort of a, a very humbling moment, I think, for both parties. If the walls are down, I mean, it's very humbling. Like, for you to be able to, as the alcoholic, accept that, but not take, you know, not take on all, like you said, the full brunt of it. This is what alcohol did, and this is the way alcohol made me react or behave. So kind of having that separation... But it's still also, it's a grieving process as you're, and a mourning process as you're going through those conversations. So allow that to naturally occur. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. That's not going to be us anymore. And it's very humbling to know how the effects of alcohol can ruin a family and that you are stepping up out of that and above that. Yep. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, we got this episode about fun off to a good start, didn't we? On this nice gloomy day as we're recording. 16 and a half minutes of sadness. But no, important message. Thank you, listener, for that question. Really, really great question. And I hope a lot of listeners got a lot out of it. Alcoholism, Sherry, it turns out, is about identity for a lot of us, myself included. Identity. I liked to drink bourbon on the rocks. I mean, I just liked... The feel of that glass in my hand. I liked when other people saw it. They'd be like, like, this is sounds cheesy. Oh my God. This is I, true. You didn't even say it out loud. And I'm what? like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. I like that people would be like, oh, he drinks straight alcohol. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need a, a mixer. Mixer. Ooh, that guy's tough. You know, I'm five nine. Got a little bit, a little pudgy. So okay. there's nothing else about me that's tough. So I wanted my, that rocks glass in yeah. my hand to be. When you were when you would drink that and you were in in like the business situation too, I think it made you feel a little older and more mature because oftentimes you were the one of the youngest because you rose pretty quickly through the ranks with your position. So I think you were maybe also feeling like that it made you look more mature and polished and all of it. It's all identity. That's absolutely right. Like picture the Marlboro Man, but like without the cigarette because I. I mean, I did smoke for a while, but I didn't think smoking was cool. I just thought the guy sitting on the horse, the the tough, the rugged. The most interesting man in the... It was more of a comedy deal. That was a parody. I know, but he's kind of looking classy and cool. Yeah. In it. Yeah. But, yeah. But it's all about identity. So, you know, and if it wasn't bourbon on the rocks, there were the the craft IPAs. I love the fact that I knew... A fair bit at the time about the local breweries and I could get in an argument with someone from the East Coast who thought they lived in the beer capital of the world. Oh, no, no, my friend. Let me tell you what we got going on in Colorado. Well, and that was, that was, you started liking IPAs a little bit more intensely when we moved to Colorado. But that was one of the comments that I remember when we were telling your, your father happened to be in town and we were telling him that we were gonna buy this franchise of bakery we have a toddler we have another baby on the way and we're gonna uproot this job and go do this and i remember your dad said and there's a lot of breweries in colorado did he really yes Mm. and then you're like yes there are (laughs) you were so excited and i don't know if it was like a backhanded comment or like a slight to like yeah and you like to drink and there's going to be beer capital of the world for you oh maybe a premonition maybe a prognostication yeah, well, turned out to be true. Because that was one of the things that you toted around as you would tell people about our new adventure of moving out here. And it's all these great microbreweries. But I also but I also always felt there was a time and a place for every beer. Like I liked, you know, we had, we did, we owned a bakery for 15 years and we had, always had young employees, young 20-somethings working for us. 
And, you know, occasionally they would have a, a house party or an apartment party and we'd get invited and, you know, I could slug back PBRs with all the, you hipsters. know, all the hipsters and uh, feel really cool about myself. So there's always a time and a place. And of course, you know, living in Colorado, there's always a time and a place for Coors. You know, it's the home, banquet. the home major brewery, the banquet. That's right. <laughs> Beer. So, um, you know, if it was if it was late beer drinking time, hot summer day, ball game, something like that, I'd always want to sport the like home when team. We lived in Chicago, we I, always. Oh yeah, when we lived in Chicago, it was the. Um, oh God, I can't even remember now. Can you? No, it just slipped off the top of my tip of my tongue as I said it out loud. Wrigley Field, North Side of Chicago. There is a specific beer that you drink there. I should just keep my phone in. It's pretty embarrassing. Actually, I'm proud of the fact that I've been sober for six years and I can't remember that because that's a thing that a yeah, drinker would remember. Yeah, there definitely people that we went to ball games with. That old style. Kind of old style, style beer. Yeah, and you were an old style light, which was kind of funny. And I liked old style heavy. Yeah. We went out, so it was kind of a flip-flop. Yeah. Well, but that's all identity. You know, if like the Coors thing. If you lined up a Coors and a Bud and a Miller, the three big major breweries right i could probably have told them apart i don't know that i liked one better than the other i liked the the coors better because it was from colorado and that's my home brewery like i liked old style because we were north siders we we rooted for the cubs and that was the north side beer so cheesy goofy stuff like that but i always had an identity piece with every every you know everywhere we lived um, every little there was stage early. in life, life, I had an identity piece yes. with the stuff that I drank. And it, you know, I came from my childhood. I remember, I distinctly remember as a child, my dad drank gin and tonics every night after work and he drank beef eater gin. And then one day that green bottle of Tangeray came into the house and I knew something had happened. He had gotten a promotion or a raise and he went from beef eater to Tangeray and still drinks Tangeray to this day. So... That that was there was some kind of, you know, status symbol to drinking. <laughs> you just think the whole thing's goofy. I do, and then I just laugh and think about my mom and her friend Debbie. That would they would sometimes drink on a Friday, and they'd have like this big bottle of Burgundy. Then, <laughs> like a little handle on the and, bottle. Yeah, like you could yeah. you could play it as a musical instrument <laughs> when you were done drinking it. <laughs> They wouldn't drink the whole bottle, of course, but then we would always that Sunday night. We they you know would be like a beef stew that had the red, the burgundy in it, and that you know. Did they also have a washboard that they played, like hee haw? No. You remember that show? Yeah, I don't think it's that. It's not moonshine. <laughs> Good God, <laughs> you'd be more up my alley. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so why am I talking about identity in an episode that's about fun? Well, let me tell you. Uh, what, you know, what, what is fun fits with this identity piece, um, (laughs) because the identity stuff just transitions into lifestyle, transitions into how I approach things, transitions into why alcohol is such a part of what I do and what I consider to be fun back in those days. When I was a drinker, I would say things. I would have mantras. I would have sayings like, and I didn't make these up, but I would glom onto them. Can you guess what I'm going to say? Yes. Come on, bring it. Let's have some fun, Sherry. What do you think I'm going to say? Uh, work hard, play hard. Work hard, play hard. I'll get all the sleep I need when I'm dead. That Those are the two tops of my list. Because you said them all the fucking time. <laughs> but yeah, that was my approach to life. Let's work hard. Let's play hard. And let, we'll get all the sleep we need when we're dead. So... So when that's your kind of lead in, your approach to fun, and, you know, it ties in with you. I was attracted to you originally because you could party. I mean, let's be honest. If you were not a drinker, I know you preferred not to drink. You preferred to smoke a little weed. Um, But if you weren't comfortable in a drinking setting and you weren't willing to go there sometimes, despite the headache and the hangover you're going to deal with the next day, you and I wouldn't even know each other, let alone be married, right? Right. I got real dramatic with my voice there. Yeah, I know. You're like puberty. I'm thinking of not being married to my wife. It makes Aww. me sad. Aww. Chokes me up. You're not the only one that can cry. Aww. But, 
but yeah, you're um you were fearless, you were brazen. Hang. Yeah. You could yeah, I mean you you could hang. You were a drinker, you were a partier. And so that fits, right? Work hard, play hard, get all the sleep you need when you're dead. And I found a woman who could who could go, who could party. So this is this is all like what my impression, what my belief system is around having fun. So now I'm sober, right? Fine, fine, fine. I've recognized I drink too much. I can't drink anymore. Alcohol's out of my life. This sucks. I'm sober. I'm going to be this way forever, apparently. How am I supposed to have fun transitioning to playing board games with the family? Hmm. It's that's, kind of a rhetorical question, but yeah, no, no, I just meant like that's almost like you could just hear the brakes, like oh, that's right, you know, because because you've never done that. I mean, you didn't even drink and play board games with the kids half the time, like when they. I were thought little. board games were stupid. You know what's fun? Um, being going to a neighborhood party and staying till the coolers drained with two other dads, and you know, all their wives have left, and the homeowner's wife is inside being mad because there's three. Doofus is still on the back porch at two in the morning drinking beer. I would have the hose out. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, so that's fun to me, right? Yeah. You know, closing down the bar. That's fun. I don't care. I don't care that I'm 45. I can hang with these 20 year olds. Yeah. That's what my impression of fun is. So, so, you know, we hear all the time and I experienced it myself. I'm sober now. What are we going to do for fun? The first thing you got to do is change your mindset. You got to change your perspective on what fun is. Because you're not going to find fun in mantras like work hard, play hard, and get all the sleep you need when you're dead. It's not going to be there. Unless you're adrenaline junkie. Then maybe you work hard, play hard. Okay, if you want to transfer the addiction to skydiving and you're independently wealthy, then go get them, Tiger. But but for most people, we've got... so. So my idea of fun was not congruent with my desire to be a good father and have a family to begin with, right? Because you know what families do? They play fucking board games sometimes, maybe even often. But here I am thinking, you know, I want to have all these things. I want to be the family man. I want to be the good husband. And I want to stay on my neighbor's back porch till two o'clock in the morning until his wife comes out with the hose or we finish the, or we finish the cooler, whichever comes first. Those things don't line up. Yeah. So it's a huge, it's a huge mindset. If you're not poisoning shift. your brain and your body, then where, where's the fun? That's right. Yeah. I mean, that that's the way you feel at the time. I mean, now I have a blast playing board games. I have a blast. I think I've got this in here in my notes. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Well, let's talk about the thing. Oh, yeah, it's next. Uh, let's talk about things that <laughs> that I think are fun. Sherry, you and I went to a Destination Imagination tournament with our 13-year-old, middle schooler, 7th grader. Destination Imagination is, think of science fair with like an acting, theatrical, dramatic component and an engineering component. It's actually a really cool thing. For someone who poo-poos most of the things in our public education system, I'm a big public education person. It's not all public I just education. I think it's all gone downhill. Yeah, like but yeah, and Destination things. Imagination is not public education. But for someone who just poo-poos all the education stuff that I come into contact with, I think Destination Imagination is pretty cool. Yeah, apparently all of our kids did too, all the older kids that didn't get to do it. Because that has come up in conversation in the last several weeks. Really? I wanted to do that, but we couldn't do it. Hmm. Why couldn't they do it? I don't know. Well, apparently, according to one of them, it was because you were drinking. Oh. But the other one I know was because it used to be on Saturdays, and we skied on Saturdays. So Mm. they were afraid to take away the ski, snow skiing stuff. But anyhow, I just thought it was funny that they were all kind of like, yeah, I wanted to do that. Well, it is cool. Yeah. I'm really impressed by it. So... We were at a Destination Imagination tournament, and the way it worked was our son's performance was at, I'm going to round some numbers here, was at like 10.45 or 11 o'clock in the morning, and then they had to do another performance that was not spectator approved, that we couldn't attend. It was a, what do you call it? Instant challenge. Instant challenge. Off the cuff kind of a thing. No spectators allowed. And then there was an awards ceremony at like... Nine o'clock that night. Oh my god, yeah. 
He, it, you are totally exaggerating, but... But the point is, between the performance and the award ceremony, there were some hours in there. Yes. And you and I, our job was to get pizza for the DI team, and then to guard the pizza in the cafeteria and guard their other belongings while they were off with their team manager, who was a wonderful parent, doing other things. And so you and I just sat in a high school cafeteria and, like, talked and looked at other people and ate more than our share of the team's pizza. It was a really good pizza. And, uh, you know, made fun of people and, I don't know, just had a good time. That was fun, Sherry. Mm-hmm. That's what fun is now. That would not fit in work hard, play hard. That would not fit in get all the sleep you need when you're dead. Yeah. That was a blast. So part of the fun you're saying was just hanging out with me, not like in our own environment where we all we could do was kind of just converse and be together if we, we had been in our, be serious if we had been in our own environment oh, we, would, we would have been know. doing laundry or dishes or gotten on the computer or picked yard, up sticks anything. in the yard or yeah. right so it is nice to be away from our home environment where there's nothing we could do i mean we could have both gotten on our phones and gotten some work done but we didn't so kudos to both of us mm-hmm. um but the 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 dramatic change and you know if you're like in the thick of active addiction whether you're the drinker or the loved one you might be thinking what are these guys talking about this is such a a minor like detail who cares i'm here to tell you this is not a minor detail this is a big deal transitioning your mindset on what fun looks like opens a whole door to the possibilities for having fun can i ask you something about that fun piece i would love for you to why are you looking around you're looking around me around the microphone like it's like this huge thing i just want to show how intent i am on listening hard to your question okay um so was it fun for you to watch our youngest like go through his state of emotions and be supportive of him and and see him interact with his friends and See him be excited and nervous before their um, performance, and then kind of see him come down. Like, like, did was that kind of fun? And did you feel like maybe it wasn't fun, but did you find it interesting? And you felt like you were being there and being present. Very interesting. I think our youngest has a lot of my traits, unfortunately, and he, like, when he's stressed, he gets a little snappy and gets a little anxious, and I mean, very common. Nothing. Yeah. He's no tyrant or anything. But it was interesting to watch him go through that. It was I would that part wasn't fun when they did really well and the the engineering component of their presentation worked because it doesn't always work. Sometimes it, you know, just fails. Mm-hmm. When it worked and they were super excited about it and they delivered the punchline at the end like they wanted to, then yeah, that was awesome. And in early sobriety and definitely in active addiction Watching our kids do anything was never fun. It was grueling. It was taking me away from drinking time. And I just didn't have the mental capacity to engage in that way. So, yeah, it was super fun. I mean, it was, I rode his anxiety a little bit with him beforehand. Although, just because of circumstances, I was barely there beforehand. I, I didn't, you were there for a long time beforehand. I got to the performance like right before it started. So I didn't experience as much of that. But it was Why are you asking to, that question? Well, I just was wondering if it was fun to to like see other people enjoy themselves and engage with his friends that they'd worked on this project together and they're his friends. If that's fun for you to watch. Yeah. Because to me, sometimes that is a lot of fun. Yeah. Watching my kids have fun. Yeah, 100%. You know, I lived, back to the identity piece, decades of my life. Looking at people and thinking, if you're not a drinker, if you're not a partier, if you don't work hard and play hard, and if you don't plan to get all the sleep you need when you're dead, you're a loser. And so I would have in the past gone to a thing like that and seen all these people that are trying to better themselves, trying to educate themselves, trying to interact in a creative way in a STEM space, right? And thought, what a bunch of losers. It's pathetic, Sherry. But when you're identity is tied to alcohol the way mine was that's not uncommon to have that perspective so yeah i had a ball 
So yes, it was partially spending time with you because it was kind of like a date. <laughs> what a fancy date in a high school cafeteria. But it was absolutely being a part of something our kids enjoy. One of the transitions that's happened for us for with our family, you know, we're not a particularly athletic family. But I coach high school soccer. So we, I think with our older two, we, I don't, I don't think we were like tyrant, you know, parents making them do something they didn't want to do, but we certainly pushed them in the direction of soccer. Soccer was encouraged because you also coached like rec center, soccer, usually their teams. We did allow them to do other sports, but soccer was kind of their main. Soccer was the main, but sports were emphasized. And what we've done with our younger two is recognize, look, just whatever you want to do. It doesn't have to be sports. Now our second youngest he, he plays sports that I didn't play, and he does well, and he enjoys them, and he gets you know great bonding with his friends. and So he's still kind of in that athletic category, but our youngest, very much not. I mean, he's into music. I mean, he, he, he does, he tries sports. It's just not his, you know, where yeah, he excels he like he it. does with other things. Yeah, he enjoys it, and we encourage... We encourage him to find physical activity in other ways that make him happy. Like, he really likes riding his bike. So, he has been one. And I think because of alcohol being removed, we have removed a lot of restrictions. Because there was a lot of worry and anxiety about our kids having, you know, like being able to go further out away from the house. So, his boundary of where he can go is a lot further at his age than it was probably with the other kids. Yeah, I think but that's... he also likes to bicycle, and he's met friends at his um, middle school that live in a, uh, the other side of the neighborhood. So he does have to go further, and we're like, yeah, let let's uh, let him bike because he enjoys it. Well, he's I think he's earned it by being responsible. But mm-hmm. you're right; that's something that we were not open to. Yeah, I was not open to partially because of alcohol, also partially <laughs> with your first child, you're just kind of more helicopter here. Mm-hmm. And as we had more experience as parents and recognized how important it was to let them go and take those risks and just pray that everything works out, how important that is for their mental well-being, mm-hmm. we've become better parents. So alcohol is a component. Maturity was a component. But just being able, yeah, there are lots of settings where I now have a blast that I couldn't, ha- I just physically couldn't have fun as a drinker or an early sobriety. Like a middle school band concert. I love those. Those are squeaky and and you're like, are they blowing the wrong end of the instrument? Like, how is that sound coming out of that thing? Those are great. Oh my God. I love that. You you do get really geeked out and excited about it. And I appreciate it because then that makes me enjoy it. Because for years when our other kids were doing things like that, and I had to be the single parent, or you would, like, rush in and see him and then leave, you know, and leave me with, like, everybody, you know, trying to manage the five-year-old that's bored to death in the pew because you or, you know, you had your own own activities that you needed to attend to. So it makes it more fun for me that you're there being my partner watching those. Absolutely. Fun for both of us. You know... One of the points that I want to make while we're talking about fun is that the euphoria is back for me. I mean, it is back full force. I, when I, okay, so when I was a drinker, I would be about two beers in, two and a half beers in if I was drinking IPAs when the kind of wave of euphoria would hit me and I would be ultimately, ultimate relaxed, ultimate carefree, just feeling great. And I I would even have conscious thoughts at that time, like, I can never let alcohol leave my life because this feeling is so unbelievably good. I have to keep this in my life forever. And then, you know, then I'd have four beers and it would be gone. And I'd still, now I'm just kind of buzzed and then I'd have six beers and I'm drunk. And so it was downhill from there. But there was always this euphoric period. And when I got sober, I said, I, you know, had a, again, a conscious kind of reconciliation with that feeling and said, look, that feeling's just out of my life forever. The only place I ever got it was when I drank. And if I'm not going to drink, then I'm never going to feel that euphoria. And that's just, that's the price. That was the big price to pay for me for sobriety. And it took 
a couple of years where I never felt that way. But then, then it would come back in little glimmers. And the first place it came back for me was on the soccer field because I just, that's one of my favorite places on earth, whether I'm playing or coaching or spectating, I just love to be there. And I, I remember specifically where I was. I remember I was watching someone else's training session, a coach that I really admire. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, I feel so good. It's that euphoric feeling. It was crazy. And now I get it all the time. But I get that euphoric feeling all the time from lots of things. A beautiful hike with my family. Um, you know, I, I lead a writing group that I facilitate on Thursday mornings. I get it with that group all the time. These writers are brilliant. They've got some really tough lived experiences that they've been through. And they just pour it out there. I get it from that. I get it from our Echoes of Recovery group. The writing that we hear in that group just is so moving. And it's just... I get it when we drive with our second youngest, our 16-year-old who's trying to learn how to drive. Um, that might seem crazy. It's stressful. There's a lot of anxiety. You know, he's, he's doing a great job, but he's a new driver, so he makes mistakes. And so there's panic and terror, but there's also euphoria just from... Here we are trying to help another adolescent turn into an adult. And this is a big component of that. It makes me feel so great. And I'll have to tell you, Sherry, one of the biggest drivers of my euphoric feeling now is your laugh. You have this very specific laugh that I don't know that our listeners have ever heard that you do primarily when you watch cat videos. Well, but, hi. <laughs> well, hi. It's not that. It's no, different than that. I know. I know. That's close, though. Yeah. I love your laugh. So you like watching me like at the end of the I like night, watching you like... watch cat videos. <laughs> yeah. You guys got good cat videos. Memes, reels, I think. Are they called reels? I don't know. But yes. I do get very tickled watching funny animal things on Instagram. So as my... Uh, ability to have fun. I like. I don't know a better way to say it. I feel like it, I've it's I've dumbed it down. Like the I can have things. fun. Yeah, you're making. It doesn't fun. have to be grandiose, and I don't have to have a hangover tomorrow, and I don't have to wreck someone else's life. Yeah, you know, and I don't have, have to, to be, be out till things. three in the morning. You're just making your fun where you are. Does that? What is that? How does that impact you? I mean, I feel like you've always been able to find fun in those things. Does it make you feel well, more? Well, I feel like I lost it for a long time because I used to, and I would try, and then I would just get beaten down, and then you would have to go overboard with drinking, and so then it would just ruin it. So, did, tell, so help me with that. Would I tell you that this this thing you want to do that's not really fun? You want to play a board game? That's stupid. That's not fun. I'm not interested in that. Like, you would just dismiss it. You weren't that outright rude about it. You were just dismissive. Or if, because we had younger children when you were drinking pretty regularly, um, you know, you they would get anxious about the who had, was somebody adding up something right? Or are they following the rules? And you just couldn't, you couldn't handle sometimes the argument and arguments that would happen during games. So... You, you would just be real dismissive and you would like correct them and scold them. And um, like when we would go and do things like, it would be like, oh, let's go to the zoo. And you're like, ah, oh, shit. Well, then they started serving beer. So then you would go to the zoo, but you were also cheap and you didn't want to spend that much money, even though we had like a zoo membership. So we didn't even have to go that long. And I would say, well, we don't have to go that long. Like we can just go see one of the sets of animals you'd be like well what's the point of that and I'm like because the kids and I have already been here this week we just didn't get over that side but you know or or it'd be like let's just go to lunch like randomly well there has to have alcohol they have to at least have a beer and wine you know license so everything kind of had to revolve around you and your needs and so it just made fun seem very unobtainable because we were being dismissed of what we think is fun. I think that's the right way to put it. I think that word is important, unattainable. It's like there's a threshold for fun, especially when you're a drinker and in early sobriety. And you use the alcohol to get you over the threshold. But you can't just find fun in a high school cafeteria as a 50-year-old couple. And there's a lot of fun to be had there. It's kind of a big deal. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So what are some things that are fun for you, Sherry? <clears throat> well, I think we mentioned some of my favorite. It's, you know, 10 minutes at the end of the day is watching animal videos. So, so we said, we both said, well, hi. <laughs> that is, Sherry's got a video of a cat that is saying in a southern accent, well, hi, as the owner as walks meowing. around the corner. Their meow sound like it says, well, hi. I'm a little off of it now, but yeah, that I've got that saved. And when I don't find a good one after scrolling for 15 minutes, I like go to my, go to that one and I watch it and then I end my session of scrolling. Um, but that, that I think sounds really lame, but it's something that's fun for me because then I realized that it was kind of like a bid. Like if I saw something fun and I wanted to share it with you, I wanted to share it with my partner. Mm-hmm. So I would stand in the kitchen and we talked about this, I don't think on the podcast, but it was a bid for, this is what I'm interested in, mm-hmm. Matt, come and see. So I would giggle out loud because I wanted you to be interested in what I was looking at, mm-hmm. what I thought was fun. Um, also fun things, you and I, I know it sounds pretty obvious, but comedians. You and I like to watch comedians. You think, you think comedians are fun? But that's something that we've <laughs> always enjoyed yeah. and, um, you know, and alcohol is involved. Now, it's more fun, like if we were to go somewhere when you weren't drinking because... You, were, I was worried, like if it was a small venue, that you would be really obnoxious or laugh too out loud or say a comment of criticism out loud. And one time we were, you even got called out by the stand-up comedian because we were right at the stage. I mean, like it was ridiculous. We were like sitting on the stage. On the, I mean, it was kind of ridiculous. But like two of the comedians made fun of our table, but they weren't bussing any glasses, and there was like water glasses and. And then we well, and our kids that were, were younger, and we had babysitters, and, and so I checked my phone to see if we get a call like, from the babysitter. Am, am I keeping you from something? And it was just kind of funny, whereas, like, I think when you were drinking, that would have been, I would have, oh my god, what's going to happen? So having you be more stable is a lot more fun. And having you find fun in silly things instead of overdramatic things, like going on a hike or going camping. Um, things like that are fun. We like to play euchre, and you do enjoy board games and just sitting around and chatting with our kids and engaging with them. My my favorite board game to play is Clue because our second oldest, he and I play it the same way. We don't just write down on our card like if you say, oh, is it the candlestick? And then someone says, no, I don't have the candlestick. And then you just write down a... We like make a note of everything that You're everybody like ever said. We, like, we have like an algorithm going. We need, you need a, not a, a spreadsheet isn't enough. We need a database to keep all the... Too much. But he and I do the same. And But you got to admit... And you didn't even talk about it. You just started doing that the same. One of, one of the two of us usually wins when we play that game. I know. I'm like, I don't know. Is it Mr. White and the camera? And we're like, you asked that same thing last time. And you're like, oh, I forgot to mark it down. And Nick and I just giggle. You're like, we're going to crush her. Yeah, like, oh, we're going to crush mother. Yes, I get it. But you guys, like, strategize, and that's what's fun. And that you have a really good sense of humor that you can find. You're finding fun everywhere, and that makes fun for me. Well, I think that's what it's about, the, is finding fun everywhere. The finding fun everywhere is, what, what is important for us to make the point of is, that is the polar opposite of the identity piece that I talked about at the beginning. That Those those two things are 180 from each other. When your identity is tied to alcohol and you're the Marlboro man without a cigarette and you like whiskey in a rocks glass and staying up till 2 o'clock in the morning with your neighbors and all of that. Finding fun in the small things is impossible. And so your identity has to not only change, but you just have to get over yourself. And that was really hard for me, and it took a long time. And now I'm very, I mean, I just am pleased as punch that I'm pretty much pretty much over myself. But it takes, we talk about it all the time, it takes strong, independent people, not glommed all over each other, to fix a relationship in recovery. It takes strong, independent people to recover individually from alcoholism, both as the drinker and the loved one. It doesn't take this mutual support. It doesn't take, you know, depending on each other. It takes 
depending on yourself, feeling confident, and both parties gaining some self-esteem so that you're you're just you're not arrogant, but you're comfortable. I I don't care what anybody thinks of me. And if I'm gonna go laugh at cat videos with my wife, I don't care that that's I, I mean I honestly this is embarrassing. I honestly there was a the majority of my life I would have felt embarrassed to do that because that's beneath me. That's a that's a, a waste of time, right? That's I'm not that person. I'm productive. I'm I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. It it's beneath me. To to what to to laugh at a cat saying, Well hi <laughs> It's the best. Maybe we'll have to figure out a way to link it. Oh. The podcast. Okay. You can figure that okay. out, Matt. Queen technology, why don't we assign that <laughs> Wait, to you? Yeah, I mean you. Oh, yes. But well, and I think it, one of the things that I think that you've found that you've gotten over yourself with is but it was also like an identity piece and now it's funny to me because of how ridiculous you are. You have a wrangler and you hardly ever put the top up all year. But one day I like to drive with the top down in the snow. It's one of my favorite it's things. It's your favorite thing. It brings me euphoria. Blasting music. But I remember this is a very quick story. I remember it was the school's preschool start of twenty twenty. And it was after Labor Day. And it was snowing to beat the band. It was insane that we got snow like the month, Tuesday after Labor Day. And I did not dress warm enough. And I, we were doing car check in and out because it was COVID. So we were taking these kids and shuttling them inside and getting them out of the car and taking their temperatures. You know, it was ridiculous. And I had to call you to say, I need you to bring me my winter coat because I had not dressed appropriately enough. And here you come. Blasting music, probably hair band. No, music. it was probably Christmas music. Because <laughs> if it snows, like I don't play Christmas music in January, February, March, April, but if it snows too early, like late summer or early fall, then I play Christmas music. Yeah, so you come bla- <laughs> blasting Christmas music in your bright yellow snow jacket. It's like one of the like ski jackets. And then. Oh my goodness. And your top's down and you're just getting snowed on. And I was like, there were new teachers because it was a new school year and hardly anybody knew me, um, you know, that was out there. I don't know the parents. The parents were like, who the hell is this? I'm like, "Uh, yeah, that's my man. (laughs) (laughs) But I was very thankful for my winter coat. Thank you. You're but welcome. that I appreciated about you because you had all of your guard was down and you were just doing whatever made you feel fun. I want to go to the zoo. Do we still have a zoo membership? No, mm-hmm. but we can go to the zoo. I have passes. Yeah. Let's go do that. That sounds like fun. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.